0: <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh>, bad start.
1: <laughs> Welcome to episode five of the African Photography Safaris podcast with me, Khalil Zaib, and Alan Hewitt. We're both professional photographers with a particular interest in wildlife and conservation, and I'm a filmmaker. Together, we also run photo safaris in Africa, and I think we'd both agree that part of our hearts will always be in Africa. Previous episodes are available via our AfricanPhotographySafaris.com website, and also on podcast providers Amazon Music, Spotify, Audible, Apple and Google Podcasts. On this podcast, we chat about what it's like to be on a photo safari and run through useful things to know, interesting topics and a few of our favorite moments we often broaden out into more general photography topics too also up on the website are any photos or videos that relate to what we're talking about during the podcast and any other links like the books we review alan's going to talk about his recent photography safaris in botswana and south africa and we've got some fantastic questions to the podcast we're also going to talk about ai artificial intelligence and its role and effect in photography
0: But before we get to any of that, we have to talk about August 2024. Wild at Matikoko, the Great Migration. Yes, we are now taking bookings for this fantastic wildlife photography safari based in the Lemek Conservancy. Lemek Conservancy is one of the private conservancies of the Maasai Mara. Well, we already have bookings actually, but we still have good availability. And it's looking like we may also be putting on an extra date running straight after the current trip. This photography safari is based at Matikogo. This camp belongs to our wonderful friend Moses who we've known and worked with since 2012. It's always been a great big five experience with so much more in there too. Far too many species to mention really. Anyway, more information on the africanphotographysafaris.com website. It's also worth mentioning that this photo safari, although it's in the greater Masai Mara
1: ecosystem, it's not based in the National Reserve. We up the game a bit. Apologies for the pun. Instead of basing our safaris in the National Reserve, we're in the very low tourist density private conservancies. We talk about the differences a fair bit in a previous podcast episode, so go and seek out the back catalogue to listen to that. As Alan said, we're now taking bookings via our website, africanphotographysafaris.com. So Alan, you've just returned from the magnificent continent after leading a couple of back-to-back trips for Penda Photo Tours, a company we do a lot of work with. I've led a gorillas and chimps photo trip to Uganda with them, and I know I was getting all jealous in the last episode
0: because you were off to Southern Africa with Penda. How was it? Absolutely epic. Uh, week one, we were in Timbavati, which is a private reserve and part of the Greater Kruger, uh, at a private lodge called Kia Kia, which is part of Umlani Camp. I had a lovely group of photographers, so hello again and thank you to Derek, Annette, Christine, and last but absolutely not least, the man himself, Don. Brief highlights are difficult as there was so much. Lots and lots of elephants, and, and it was incredible how many elephants actually. Every morning and evening, I think, with very young calves and juveniles... Um, We had one evening with five white rhino at once, and later a lone male. Also, a fantastic female leopard sighting in a tree with a huge male impala prey. You know, it it never ceases to amaze me how they haul those huge prey animals high up into trees. An adult female leopard weighs in, you know, around 45 kilos um, at the most, and the male impala can weigh in at around 75 kilos to be able to haul that across terrain um, where the kill is made. That's one thing, but then to climb vertically up a tree and then along a branch, it's quite an incredible feat of strength. Our first sighting was a very poor sky, but the next morning she was still there and we had much better light and background blue sky as well. So we also enjoyed an evening with a male lion who pretty much roared constantly for a full minute while rolling around in some buffalo <laughs> <shit>. <laughs>
1: that sounds awesome. Although I do wonder why a lion would roll around in shit, but uh, there we go. Going back to the leopards, I remember in part uh, Mara North one year, we came across a male leopard who had hauled a massive eland calf up a tree. Eland are the largest antelopes in the world, and they're absolutely enormous. And even a baby was easily bigger than him. Pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, it's incredible to see how quickly a leopard can climb a vertical tree trunk, even without prey. Uh, Also, lots and lots of giraffes, as usual, complete with red-billed oxpeckers. On our last drive we were treated to a pack of wild dogs. It's only the third time that I've seen wild dogs and on this occasion it's probably the closest that I've been to them. As we know it's a very difficult animal to find. They're very fast, challenging to photograph as they move through the bush with such speed. As usual, lilac breasted rollers were present in huge numbers this time. As were yellow and red-billed hornbills, lots of magpie shrikes or long-tailed shrikes as they used to be known as. And also plenty of folk drongos accompanying the rhinos and elephants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lol, you're a folk-tailed drongo.
0: Yeah, I see the adults have left the room once again. <laughs> so we then, uh, after South Africa, we moved on to Thule, uh, Chuly Block in Botswana, to the wonderful Sorolo Camp, uh, part of Chuli Wilderness. We were joined by another couple of guests, Keith and Linda, And of course Linda we know who like Dawn, is a Kenya regular with us and I believe she's also coming back with us in 2024 and which should be most welcome and be great to see her again in Kenya. Again lots and lots of elephants, again with young huge numbers of baboons, male lion, cheetah with a couple of cubs and again a superb abundance and variety of bird life. Special mention has to be the white fronted bee eater colony. Um, We spent time down on the Limpopo River as they whizzed around us then as they often do returning to the sort of favoured perches. And this kind of thing really brings us back to three of the things we've discussed in episode four. So a little bit of a recap here. Firstly, when you, when you come across these little bird colonies, it's one of those unexpected things. You just, you just sort of come across basically serendipity. Absolutely. Yeah. We, you know, we talked about the vultures and the Mara triangle in, in the last um, podcast. And of course it isn't the big five or a ch- not a cheetah or a giraffe. It's not megafauna but it absolutely 100% provides a wonderful photographic opportunity. And back in episode 4, we also discussed fast frame rates and pre-shots, and this bee a colony, was a perfect example of how beneficial those qualities can be in a camera. You know, they move so, so quickly, and they give no warning when they're going to take off. And again, thirdly, it was also a great example of the advantage of using a monopod, You know, keeping the camera and lens in place, waiting for some action without having to strain the arms. Speaking of
1: monopods, I hear you've been replaced.
0: Yes, I have. Uh, A little bit more on that later. Um, (laughs) That's a a long story. (laughs) We'll go into that in a while. Yeah, um, trying to get takeoff shots of a perched beater is a lot easier on the arms when you can balance your long, heavy lens on a monopod. I could have sat there for hours, really, with the beaters, but the light began to drop, so after experimenting with some slower shutter speed stuff, we moved on for beers around the fire. Uh, other bird life, grey-go-away birds, very, very loud and noisy around camp, which oh, are beautiful. Go, go away! <laughs> yeah, and also lots of rubble starlings, also in huge abundance, as were Cory's Busted, which is a, the national bird of Botswana. <laughs> busted. <laughs> Massive busted. <laughs> bat fox is also another notable mention. Now, we've seen these in the Mara quite a bit, um, but they've always been exceptionally skittish. But in Botswana, and Chuli Block, we had one that just lay asleep in front of a bush right in front of us for ages. It, it just didn't move. It's a weird looking animal. It's called bat Fox, but really it should be a sort of entirely bat-faced fox anyway. Chuli has a wonderful and very varied landscape with some fantastic colours and foliage and rock formations. And it was very, very quiet too. We actually only saw one of the vehicle and we saw it on two different occasions. And incidentally, I was so pleased I had the camera dust covers that we also chatted about in a previous episode. You know, we talk about dust in Kenya and South Africa, but Botswana was so very dry and breezy too. And, you know, I spent a fair amount of time cleaning quite a few cameras that week for those who didn't bring covers. So, lesson learned, when you're going to go to these places, you really, really need to do bring something to protect your cameras against the uh, dust, especially when it's dry and windy. Um... Two very, very good highlights of the of week two in Chuli which stand out. Firstly, the lions and the leopard, and we were alerted to a potential predator activity by alarm calling in parlor, as we often are. And on locating the cause, we found a lone lioness moving with clear purpose. I thought, oh, well, it's not a leopard then. Um, well, we didn't think so at the time, but we then saw that she was following a female leopard when it shot out of the grass and up a tree with some incredible speed and agility. And we spent quite a while photographing her on a tree branch underneath the sort of dappled light from the tree canopy another lioness joined the first line which just kept the leopard on alert all the time second big moment um, we headed towards a, a place called eagle rock where the malauzi river carves its way through tuli and the river was actually a dry riverbed at this time it being winter in the dry season but we managed to photograph a herd of around 50 60 elephants probably even more as they crossed in small groups, some with impala, baboons, giraffe and wildebeest in the background, and some with the rocky features of the landscape, with saw wonderful wildlife in the landscape context opportunity, which I, which I really like so much. Photographically, it's a shame that we couldn't go further down onto the riverbed, but from our position, the elephants were right beneath us, digging into the sort of water table to, get some, uh, to drink, to get some water. So, two very, very good back-to-back trips again with a lovely group of photographers, some fantastic people to work with again. John the tracker in Tim Bavarti, and the legend that is Safari Elvis, Manasseh, a wonderful <laughs> chef from Malawi. Uh, Joe, an absolute brilliant tracker. He found a male lion by following tracks for quite a while through very, very dense foliage and is hugely knowledgeable about the wildlife on his doorstep. Kennedy, he deserves another mention, a fantastic chef too at Sirolo and Block chefs as we know they are an incredibly important part of a safari definitely they are <laughs> so i look forward to next year when we head back to south africa's as timbavati again this time we're going to be actually staying in umlani camp rather than kia kia and also back to botswana's tuli block in saralo Saruk, and also back to botswana's serolo camp in chuly block so these are trips that i lead for Penda photo tours and we also have some space and availability for these two and also a trip in october to southern tanzania Excellent.
1: I have a small amount of experience of Botswana in the Chobi River area. Loads and loads of elephants. It was fantastic. It's a really beautiful place. Uh, I was only there for a very short time, but I'd love to explore more of the country sometime. So, questions on the podcast. Firstly, we asked you what animal in sub-Saharan Africa would you love to photograph, but which you found to be too elusive? Kevin said pangolins.
0: Well, technically I have seen a pangolin, but I've never photographed it, which sounds a bit ominous. Um, At the time, I didn't even know I'd kind of seen it until a little while afterwards. I was in the great Kruger area of South Africa at one of the security gates, and there was a bit of a commotion going on, and an anti-poaching patrol was engaged in something. It transpired that one of them ran past me carrying a pangolin, I did see some guy running past carrying something, but I didn't really identify it at the time. And we found out that it had been confiscated from some poachers, but was covered in motor oil. And I think this is a tactic to mask the scent from security dogs. I think they were getting it to somewhere where it could be cleaned up and helped by vets. And it was very, very sad. Khalil, have you ever seen a pangolin?
1: Well, obviously, I've got a pet pangolin called Jeeves, but apart from him, No. <laughs> Slightly tangential. Uh, seriously though, it's really sad. The, the, you know the, the, one of the most trafficked animals, unfortunately. It's the usual story, dodgy medicine, supposed food delicacies and clothing like shoes and bags. I mean, can you imagine wearing a pair of shoes out of pangolin skin? It's just ah, it's just crazy. One thing I heard in the news only a few days ago actually was that there's been a new ninth species of pangolin discovered through the analysis of the scales of poached animals in Hong Kong and China. You know, really, it's awful to think the only way we found this out—new uh, a species—is through the actions of traffickers.
0: It, it is. It's 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 very sad, and I think my favorite term for this idiocy is just medieval quackery. Yeah. Um, you know, but potentially discovering a new subspecies by analysis of confiscated scales is just is just awful. You know, the loss of species by poaching is is one part of a problem, and I understand that many pangolins are actually killed by electric fences as well as poaching; they get zapped but their natural defense is to curl into a ball in defense, and they often end up wrapping themselves around a wire and eventually the electrical pulses kill them. Shocking, isn't uh, that? It's <laughs> a <laughs> shocking <laughs> joke. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I experienced a lot of elephants in Timbavati and in Block this year. Bit of a tangent here, but we'll, we'll get back to pangolins in a second. Anecdotally, I also heard that A fair bit of chat that the rangers and the security teams have slowly been winning the war against poachers. And we're now starting to see the results, and there's huge amounts of um, huge populations of elephants. I've also read a few snippets lately of various reserves reporting zero known poaching incidents in 12 months, which is absolutely fantastic to hear. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it's great. But when we were in Botswana, there were no rhinos, and that was a conscious decision. The ro- the reserves and the rangers just aren't able to deal with the problems and the dangers and the risks that come with them, and I can't blame them at all. I, you know, I totally understand it, but it's it's such a sad situation to be in.
1: Yeah. And Nicola asks about aardvarks. Now I've never seen one, although I've seen a few warthog burrows that probably started life as an aardvark project.
0: Yeah. The the. Aardvark is regarded as a keystone species as the holes it digs are then used by other species such as hyenas, wild dogs and snakes and lizards etc. It's an example of a commensalism type of relationship called metabiosis where one species uses something made by another species. The, uh, the closest I've been to seeing one is when I was in a Land Rover which actually got its rear wheel stuck in a hole in Timberfarty and we ended up having to get a toe out. So yeah, I've seen plenty of evidence of burrows, some very fresh, and of course, some then inhabited by other animals, but I've never actually seen one, never mind photographed one. Format High Tech, manufacturers of fine camera filters, uh, they asked us about what sort of macro opportunities that we uh, get to see in Africa.
1: Okay, so uh, just a little introduction for anybody that's not come across macro photography before. It's where we use special macro lenses or sometimes adapters on existing lenses to get really close up to something. True macro is regarded as one to one or greater, i.e. where the subject ends up on the sensor being the same size as or larger than it is in real life. It allows you to get really close up detailed photos. By the way, macro is possibly a misnomer. I'm never really sure about it because um, macro lenses are often called macro when they don't actually achieve that full one-to-one reproduction ratio.
0: Yeah, I think macro has become one of those very misused photographic terms where it, it sort of generally rates to anything sort of that like you photograph close up, reasonably small, yeah. but it is actually a sort of particular scientific, mathematic one-to-one reproduction, as you say.
1: Yeah, Nikon actually call their close-up lenses micro for that reason, although confusingly, I think pretty much all of the Nikon lenses are actually one-to-one lenses. So I'm not really sure what's going on there, but generally speaking, um, one-to-one is regarded as true macro. Anyway, this reminds me of the first time I tried macro photography properly, long before I became a professional and in the pretty early days of digital actually as well. I bought a second hand five times macro lens off eBay, a Canon MPE sixty-five millimeter, which could not only deliver one to one ratio, but five times that. So it was a a zoom, it could go from one to five times ratio. I couldn't wait to get the thing on the camera, but when I tried to take an image, it looked looked bloody awful, frankly. It had all these ugly spots all over the image, and I was just like, the hell's going on here. Now you probably know what's coming, but I was really inexperienced at this point. I was a bit cheesed off and emailed the guy who had boarded off to complain. He came back and told me in no uncertain terms that what I was seeing wasn't a problem with the lens. I was seeing sensor spots. My camera's sensor was filthy, and the macro lens was massively exaggerating these tiny specks. It was my first introduction to sensor cleaning, and uh, you know, also one of the problems with macro photography: depth of field. It's absolutely tiny. If you've ever tried it, it's it's trying to get stuff in focus. You get this tiny, tiny plane of focus um, which is really difficult to deal with so in order to get enough depth of field you need to stop the lens down a lot so narrow the aperture and that not only cuts down a lot of the light but exaggerates sensor spots so you, you may have come across this if you've done landscape photography with a bright sky and a narrow aperture if your sensor isn't clean the stop down lens will bring out all of those blemishes thankfully pretty much all the cameras these days have automatic sensor cleaning but that keeps it to a minimum But going back in those days, it just wasn't a thing. So back to the problem of depth of field with macro, it's common to have only a tiny amount of the image in focus, like I was saying. Maybe it can be as exaggerated as only the tiny part of a butterfly's eye, for example. I know that sounds extreme, but it really does get to that sort of level when you're at very, very close up. Some modern cameras can compensate for this lack of depth of field by focus stacking or focus bracketing. That's where the camera takes multiple shots with tiny focus variations, then it puts them all together into a final image with larger depth of field. But you you'd need a really still subject for this, though. Also, this can be done after the fact in software where you stack those images together, but uh, some cameras actually have this in-camera, which is handy. That's another problem with macro photography. Any tiny amounts of movement are massively exaggerated. If you've ever tried close-up photography of flowers, like even in a light breeze, you'll know this quickly turns into action photography. You can either clamp the plant into place with something like a Wimbley plamp, or you, know, you can put some kind of screen around it to try and avoid some of the wind, or you can use autofocus if the lens has it, or all of these things together. You can't do this on an insect though, so you'll need to hope they stay very, very still. A tip I've learnt about dragonflies, for example, in the UK is that they don't start flying unless it's about 13 degrees Celsius or more. Their bodies need to warm up before they can take to the air, so get there really early in the morning before the day gets too warm. The last thing I'd like to mention about macro photography is that you might have to add light. If you're really close to the subject with a narrow aperture, you might need a lot of light to make the shot work. I've used various configurations of flashes for this, including lens-mounted flashes, and even taking a battery-operated studio light out into a meadow is really not very practical, uh, but interesting. Um, A Lack of light is often an issue, and adding a flash can look unnatural as well, unless you diffuse it and balance it correctly. So the angle of the the light can often look very unnatural. Macro can be pretty involved, as you've probably understood from this, and very technical, but it's really rewarding. Be prepared to experiment, though. Uh, experiment a lot. Alan, have you messed about with macro much?
0: I've done a little bit here in the UK, but nothing particularly sort of long-term project-wise. And I've never really done anything in Africa either, although they are certainly opportunities. for flowers, plenty of little insects. And one of the things I always see is these horns and animal bones. I think the horn moth would be a very interesting macro subject. And this is where the larvae, uh, burrows into horns to pupate and it does so by ingesting the keratin leaving behind protuberances which <laughs> are basically the larva's faeces. So there's two fine words there. <laughs> pupate and protuberance in the same sentence. It's mainly deceased animals but it has been seen on live horned animals albeit very rarely.
1: Protuberances. That sounds like it could be word of the podcast. As
0: long as you add pupate. <laughs> it's
1: not as good as protuberances. I mean, come on, you know. There's hierarchy On to the book review. So this episode's book review is going to be a bit different. So far on the podcast, we've pretty much looked at field guides, that sort of book. And this time we've got a wildlife story. It isn't a novel, but it reads like one. It's called The Elephant Whisperer, a really gripping account of a conservationist called Lawrence Anthony, who set up a wildlife reserve called Tula Tula in South Africa. He gets a call to ask whether he can take a herd of elephants, ideal for the reserve, he thinks. But then he finds out that these are troublesome traumatised animals that nobody wants or can deal with. The animals are expert escapologists and even managed to get out of electrified enclosures, endangering the people nearby. These are angry, frightened elephants and if he doesn't take them quickly, they'll be shot. It's an unexpected and really powerful true story of human perseverance, patience and incredible connection with the animals, with lots of twists and turns, which I'm not going to give away, but it's told in such an engaging way that I read it in one sitting. I audio-booked it in one sitting. A man has things to do whilst listening. There are moments of incredible insight into the complex character and intelligence of these magnificent creatures by turns nail-biting, heart-stopping, thrilling, funny, desperately sad and uplifting. There's tenderness, heartbreak, betrayal and life-affirming joy. You can really feel the sheer thrill of being so close to these enormous animals. I mean, the hair on the back of my neck is still standing up, just remembering some of the scenes. it's, It's magnificent. He never loses sight of the fact that the elephants are wild animals that could kill him at any moment, but he builds up such trust with them that there's a palpable two-way understanding that's really, really profound. At the end, I felt like I had a better understanding of the behaviour of elephants, which I think will enrich my experience with them next time we're out in Africa. There's a link on the podcast page of our website to buy this book. For the audiobook, I couldn't find it on Audible in the UK. I think it maybe isn't licensed over here, but I eventually tracked it down on Audiobooks Now, a US service.
0: It is an absolutely wonderful book, and it really sort of, for me, highlights the magnificent emotional intelligence that these elephants actually do have. Mm. Incidentally, the author, Lawrence Anthony, has Northumbrian blood. Uh, His grandfather was a miner in Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is just up the road from us.
1: All right, I didn't know that. It was quite a character. Uh, unfortunately he died in 2012 and there's an incredibly touching scene in the epilogue of the book which underlines the connection he'd made with the elephants. I won't spoil it so you'll have to read it to see what I mean. A notable mention should go to one of his other books called Babylon's Ark which outlines how he stepped in to rescue the animals of Baghdad Zoo during the devastation of the Iraq war. That's going to be on my list now.
0: So a couple of news items, a uh, very, very interesting announcement I thought from Fujifilm in September. The announcement of a 500mm prime lens is in development, but surprisingly not for the X mount, it's for GFX. If you're not familiar with GFX, that is the medium format mount. So a prime lens, 500mm medium format lens. I've used some of the GFX cameras in Africa previously with the 250mm f4 um, and the 1.4 dedicated converter for the GFX system, so I'm really watching this with a lot of interest.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, Maybe you can bring one along next time. Uh, Do you know what the maximum aperture of that is?
0: I think it's going to be an f5.6 lens, which Mm. is very, very interesting. It's going to be an interesting lens design. Um, Hopefully, they'll find a way of keeping it quite compact.
1: Yeah, but for medium format. Absolutely. So you also said you, or rather your monopod, has been replaced.
0: Yep, that is right. Alan 2.0 is no longer. Well, it is still around, of course. That's, that's, to say it's it's no longer is is wrong. Yeah. But yeah, it, it has been replaced. You've
1: been cancelled. Deleted from the line. An ex-monopod.
0: Pining for the planes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, as we know, I'm a huge advocate of using a monopod. Uh, particularly on safaris. And up until very recently, my favorite monopod was the Allen 2.0 from Three Legged Thing, as we discussed in the previous episode. It's not named after me, it's named after Alan is it not? Turing. It's named after Alan Turing. <laughs> we talked about this, we talked about it. So, yeah, Allen 2.0 has now been updated and replaced by Alana. Um, immediately noticeable <laughs> is the addition of a new rotating and adjustable wrist strap, which is very useful for extra security also I imagine it'll be quite useful hanging up somewhere you know and little sort of things that we have on safari vehicles doorknobs and handles and things like that save it rolling around the floor uh, also gone is this tri-mount plate which could be helpful for cable management in the past but i think since the transition to full size type a hdmi i feel this feature is pretty much redundant as they don't actually fit like the micro hdmi did and they, let's be honest, they were pretty awful anyway, weren't they?
1: Yeah, they're really vulnerable to snapping off. I've, I've actually done that myself several times. Oh,
0: loads of times. Absolutely so frustrating. So, you know, you can't really use that for the HDMI cables anymore. So losing this chunky tri-mount plate makes the monopod now less intrusive and a little bit more comfortable if you hold it and support it in this area. There's a very useful spring-loaded combination screw which enables three-eighths of an inch and quarter of an inch screw threads that's been maintained and at the other end of the monopod we have a slightly more substantial sized foot which increases the grip and the stability but it's what's in between which I think is the most noticeable difference the rubber grips on the allen 2 twist locks which were very good to use uh, and with gloves but these have been improved again with very deep o-shaped rubber grips which provide even more grip which is much more reassuring even with very thick gloves Uh, and also easier to use in inclement weather and also when adjusting in a hurry and it doesn't really change the maximum diameter either Alana is a little bit taller now standing at 1.58 metres compared to Alan 2 at 1.48 metres and this extra 10 centimetre comes at a cost of just 0.8 centimetres at the minimum height which you know it's another winner so let's have a look at some of the other specs apart from the uh, height difference The minimum height at 44.8 centimetres compared to 44, it's absolutely nothing when you're thinking about putting it in your camera bag uh, or your hold luggage. They've both got this amazing load capacity of a phenomenal 60 kilos. That really Uh, is very impressive, actually. It is. And, you know, one of these discussions that come around, why do you need a monopod that holds 60 kilos? And, yeah, I get that. You're very, very unlikely to be putting 60 kilos of weight on a monopod. But... What does mean is that these twist locks are very, very strong and inspire a lot of confidence when you're actually using it. Mm. Yeah. Very solid. There's a slight weight increase, but given the sort of other uh, benefits of what's changed, I think it's gone up about 30 grams or something like that, and those extra grips, which are much more chunky, don't actually change the maximum tube diameter either. So, like Allen 2.0, uh, Alana is compatible with the Dox stabiliser, which increases the height further to 1.63 metres, if you wish. And as well as adding stability, Dox also provides 360-degree rotation and 30 degrees tilting. Docks in itself is also an incredibly effective and useful tabletop tripod, and also for lens support in places like bird hides, you know, when you've got, like, a little shelf and you can't get your tripod and your monopod in, but you still want to use a tripod head, you can... You can put that on the shelf. It's it's really good for that, and it's it's not something that it was really designed to do, but it works exceptionally well at it. At the same time, so what's not to like? Well, nothing really. Possibly the name. Possibly, <laughs> possibly the fact that they've upgraded me. You know, well, if I was going to be very very fussy and just have to point out something, you know, for the sake of it, I, I would probably say that it would have been nice to be able to remove and reattach the wrist strap as necessary but you know it's a, it's a really minor gripe you know at the end of the day the, the new Alana monopod I I really do like these monopods um, it's a fantastic upgrade to me and as a, <laughs> as, a, as, a as a traveling wildlife photographer it do, really is ideal do you feel better for it i do i feel feel happier that i've been <laughs> upgraded well it's very small at it's shortest size and yet it extends very tall it's extremely strong with the weight load And it's still reasonably light given all of these other qualities. You know, these very physical tactile rubber grips on the twist locks. And I honestly believe I've used a lot of monopods from a lot of different companies. And I believe it is the most versatile monopod available, especially for wildlife photographers. And it is available from the Three-Legged Thing website. And I have to mention, I am not sponsored or paid by Three-Legged Thing. I just like good gear. And this is good gear.
1: So do I now have to call you Alana? I mean, you, you do look nice in that dress, to be fair.
0: Uh, I'd rather you didn't.
1: <laughs> now under something most of you will have heard of in the news. Uh, some of you may have played around with it or been affected by it. AI, artificial intelligence. AI is a massively wide-ranging topic, encompassing everything from chatbots like chat GPT and BARD to autonomous driving systems. Uh, It also covers a vast array of things like medical research, homework, playing chess, software engineering, Siri, Alexa, robotics, script writing, music, video, and image generation. It's working its way into every corner of life.
0: I'm pretty much lost already. <laughs> you know, pretty, you've lost me now.
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm particularly interested in this field, um, although uh, minefield would probably be a more accurate way of describing it. It's very exciting, but anyway. Um, yeah, what we're going to talk about today is how AI is affecting photographers now and what it might mean for the future, and maybe broadening it out a little bit as well. I mean, you can go to MidJourney, Night Cafe or Dali, and type in an English language sentence of what you want to see, and the AI tool spits out an image based on what you just typed. Well, this can be anything from incredibly realistic people, and really they, they, they are very, very realistic. Uh, you know, animals, landscapes, whatever. But, uh, you know, also down to the downright weird abstract things. Often with um, an unexpected number of fingers and arms that appear in strange places as well, although they've definitely improved that recently. But would we wanna do this as photographers? Well, you might not, but it raises some interesting questions like, is there any point in even taking photos anymore if people can just generate them with AI? Well, I think yes, crafting a photograph is incredibly satisfying, Learning how to creatively affect how the shot looks, very empowering and rewarding. And of course, as wildlife photographers, the photography is just part of the whole experience and searching for a wild animal and spending time with it, being out in the wild and experiencing the whole thing with all of your senses. You can certainly easily create an image on mid-journey to your specification, but it won't be satisfying. That's my opinion anyway. It also won't quite look like the photos you take yourself. The technology isn't really that good yet, but really it's improving at breakneck speed. Aside from the process of taking a photo, creating a photo, if you will, there's also the other side of photography, editing. If you use Photoshop, you may have come across features like generative fill. When I first heard about this, I kind of held it in the same regard as I do sky replacement, something that's interesting, but you know, ultimately totally pointless in the work I do. And then I did a drone photography job for somebody who's actually been on one of our safaris before. I know he also listens to the podcasts. So hi, Daryl. Daryl needed some shots of the solar panel array put on his company's roof. I duly flew around and got the shots, and then realized when I got back to the office, I made a bit of schoolboy error. Daryl and I were still in the shots. Dope. So Photoshop to the rescue. I managed to easily use the AI-powered fill to paint over us. If voila, no Daryl and me. However, the type of photography I normally do is, is more based in realism. Whilst I have control over a lot of the creative parameters, it's unlikely I'd ever want to use the new generative fill. For example, to expand around an animal portrait to make an almost completely AI-generated scene. I think it's, it's more something you'd use for creative art, which is fine. Uh, and, but, you know, for wildlife photography, I think it would be regarded as downright cheating. Uh, and I'd agree. What's more useful to somebody like me who uses Lightroom is that there are various features in this software that have now been enhanced by AI, like noise reduction or content aware removal for those sensor spots. In fact, wherever you look, software for almost everything is getting AI power-ups. Right across the Adobe suite of apps, for example, Microsoft's Office, Google's Office apps and so on. For example, you can give an AI a plain spreadsheet of numbers and ask it to make sense of the data and draw meaningful graphs. I mean, pretty amazing, really. We don't use AI to write these podcast scripts. Hopefully we don't sound very robotic, but what we do do which is very interesting, is we use some AI software to transcribe the recorded audio into something that I can then edit. Once we've recorded the audio, I run the whole thing through an app called Descript, which transcribes the text so I can edit, cut and paste, rearrange, chop out sections that didn't work, or words we stumble over. Well, okay, more me than Alan, to be fair. That's true. That's (laughs) definitely true. Most of of it's me. (laughs) Um, Also, the number of beers we've had through throughout the whole recording increases the amount of editing needed proportionately. Towards the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) What like now, you mean? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I use this extensively in my film work too, which is quite interesting. So my my latest documentary, um, it had 14 interviews and, at tens and tens of hours of footage. To tame this huge and overwhelming amount of information, I used AI to transcribe the audio and collect together snippets from each interview so I could assemble them into a coherent order and delete anything that people had already said. And and it it just helped sort of um, put the whole thing together. The best thing about Descript is that it keeps the video alongside the audio. So you can cut and paste a paragraph, transcribed text from an interview and the video gets cut and pasted along with it. Magic. So what am I trying to say about AI here? Well, without AI, this would have taken me two or three times longer, or even more, or I'd have to have employed another person to help. You know, incredibly time consuming, these sort of things, and anything that helps is is very, very welcome. Coming back to generative AI tools like ChatGPT, which is the most famous, there's a problem here. ChatGPT is a large language model. It scrapes billions of bits of text from all over the internet, all the things we humans have put up there, and scrunches it all up into a model that allows it to predict how a human would use language. Then it spits out sentences, and we say, wow, and it really can be genuinely useful. It also feels like it's truly intelligent. I had a half-hour conversation with it about the current research in quantum computing, for example, which is pretty enlightening.
0: That sounds absolutely thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> the sort of thing I spend my evenings doing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you find a
1: club or something. Is, is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll figure it out Mo. I think so. Yeah, uh, he's talking to chatbots. However, even though the output is extremely human-like, it's not actually intelligent. That's a common misconception. It doesn't actually know anything as such. It just predicts what the next word should be in the sentence. It's just an incredibly sophisticated prediction engine based on enormous amounts of data. The problem is... Who gave consent for all this text to be used in this way? And do the people who originally created the text that was scraped from blogs and internet websites and so on, do they have a recourse to say, hey, actually, that's my text? Similarly, Midjourney, Stable Diffusion and Dali analyse hundreds of millions, billions even, of images from the internet and make models that are capable of outputting something that looks like a human made it. Looks like a human took the photo. In fact, that's a real problem. Did you give permission for the AI model to scrape a copy of your image to put on its dataset? I bet you didn't. There are lawsuits against some of the major organisations behind these tools at the moment, and it's been interesting to see where they go. I don't think anybody knows what the right answer to this is yet, but, you know, I have noticed that there are now clauses in stock libraries about permission for use in AI datasets. And video and filmmaking doesn't get off scot-free either. Platforms like Runway are starting to create interesting AI-generated video content it's uh it's pretty weird at the minute and often quite unsettling but pretty amazing um but it's it's either incredibly exciting or overwhelmingly scary depending on your point of view or maybe both at the same time i can't quite make my mind up about that to be honest i used to be a software engineer and last year i thought i'd see if i could write some code using an ai library to track people's faces in a video file it was unbelievably easy Presumably, the Chinese government's been rubbing its hands with glee for many years at these tracking developments. Interestingly as well, um, with some more code that I wrote a bit later on, when ChatGPT came out, I actually used it to help me write the code and that's what people have been doing for the last year now. And not only are there AI libraries out there to use as code, it's, it's quite interesting. As you are writing software, you can actually link up with something like ChatGPT and say, well, here's my code. This is what I've written so far. It's not really working very quickly. Can you suggest a more efficient way of doing this? And within seconds, it just comes back and says, here's a better way of doing that. And here's why. That's, <laughs> It's just absolutely amazing. Also, if you've ever been on TikTok or Snapchat, you'll have seen that AI powered filters are absolutely ubiquitous. You know, with the video, so uh, the AI is here with us in so many aspects. So, where does this leave us as photographers?
0: I've no idea. I've got no idea what you're on about. So I'm, I'm just going to go and get in a beer while you continue to uh, rattle on about artificial intelligence <laughs> well, photography. I might add something later on, but for now, just just take yourself away.
1: I'm, well, I'm going to have a beer as well before I rattle on and ramble. Ah, oh, yeah, that's better. Right, I'm re-lubricated. Believe it or not, even though it seems like the AI is everywhere already, I suspect we're only at the very beginning of AI's development. That's quite shocking to think about, but you know it's really exploded over the last year, but it's bound to get more and more sophisticated as time goes by. I think as productivity enhancements to every part of our lives go, that's just likely to get more and more prevalent. I think it's undeniable that AI tools are going to get more and more complex and they will do increasingly useful things for us. In fact, camera manufacturers are putting AI right into their cameras. Most of the latest models have some sort of AI-powered autofocus, and you may already be using this without realising it iPhones for example have had AI for years to take photos you probably just never thought about it they take multiple pictures when you press the button and use deep fusion to piece together the best bits from each photo into the final image but what's the future of photography I guess Alan still doesn't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> more beer Alan I have actually got something to add in a bit don't okay. you worry okay.
1: <laughs> even now I mean this is this is interesting so um If a graphic designer or a web developer needs a photo of a hummingbird instead of the usual trip to a photo library to buy an image they might try an ai tool to generate exactly the hummingbird image they want by not using a photographer's image no photographer gets paid for this i've used hummingbird because i've got photos of hummingbirds myself as mentioned before there's an ethical problem here whilst the end result is something that's unique and never been seen before It's undeniably been created through machine analysis of a bunch of real photos of hummingbirds. One of those images might have been yours or mine. Is there a counter argument to make that goes something like, well, you know, we humans look at lots of images and use them to learn what kind of images we'd like to create with our cameras. We look on the web, we buy books, pay for courses and workshops to learn photography. That's other people's content, isn't it? But we probably paid to acquire at least some of that knowledge. A book, a photography workshop or a safari If that's the difference, how do the original photographers of hummingbirds, like you and me, get compensated for their work when AI generates an image using them? How do you know when those images are used? The opacity of AI algorithms means that, as far as I'm aware, you can't even find that out. Even the developers of the AI model's code can't know this because of the complex way AI puts together images from billions of parameters. Oh, and by the way, it's getting harder and harder to tell whether an image has been AI generated or not. So, how would you even know to ask whether your image was used in the dataset if you can't even tell if the image was AI generated in the first place? Usually, when technological breakthroughs happen, some people get left behind, lose their jobs, or become disenfranchised. Others adapt and evolve to use the new tools to create previously unimagined things, artworks that nobody could have predicted. Jobs that nobody knew existed, because they didn't exist beforehand. Productivity enhancements that save huge amounts of time. Undoubtedly, it's both an exciting time to be alive, I mean, AI protein folding algorithms are finding drugs in mind-blowingly short timescales. But it's also a deeply worrying one. Not because the robots will rise up and destroy civilization, I mean, hey, we've got at least 50 years before we get wiped out by the Terminator. But the real and AI worlds are becoming more and more blurred together, and that's a difficult thing to navigate through.
0: <sighs> <laughs> wow, Skynet. <laughs> I, I'm glad you did that bit and, and not me. Sarah uh, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but on a serious note, um, you know, I'm not really up on the whole AI thing. I'm aware of it, of course. I know a few people who have been very excited about how it can be used for generative fills, et cetera, in Photoshop. But I'm a bit old school when it comes to this sort of thing um, in nature and wildlife photography. Like you, a lot of the wildlife photography buzz is working to get the shot as much as having the finished shot, being out in the field, you know. I think there is an implicit expectation upon us to photograph nature and the key word here is nature and natural. We photograph animals next to trees and in habitats. We photograph animals that are identifiable as individuals in their territories, particularly megafauna. And while I'm not averse to cloning out the odd rogue twig or something, you know, I don't do anything that would change the animal or misrepresent it in its habitat. It's all real and witness to nature, and that's Mm. very, very important to me. Creating something in AI that isn't real that I didn't witness just has no connection and therefore no interest to me as a wildlife photographer.
1: Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. Um, in 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 the context of wildlife photography, um, if you were to generate an entire scene of wildlife from AI, it's just an entirely different art form. It's not what we would think of as wildlife photography.
0: No, I mean go go back to the wildlife photography as far as that we actually do, hmm. and when we come across an amazing you know an amazing species in an amazing place. Yeah, everybody gets some nice photographs, but then, you know, 20 minutes later when we drive away and we stop for a beer or a cup of coffee, nobody says, oh, this fantastic photograph, this fantastic photograph. That comes, you know, a few days later. Mm. What comes immediately afterwards is, wow, what an amazing experience. Exactly. That, what, what Did you see when the lion did this? Did you see when the elephant did such and such and when the leopard did whatever or the cheetah? And that's just, that's experiential. It's not yeah. anything that can be said to be created by sitting at home and creating something on a computer.
1: No, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think AI has, has its place in in art, and and that's great because it's it's sort of covering new frontiers. But you just can't replace being in the moment, experiencing wildlife in the true outdoors.
0: Absolutely. Anyway, speaking of being in the moment, uh, quick mention uh, before we. Tail off this podcast, I will be at the Northwest Bird Watching Festival, which takes place at Martin Mear, one of the Wild Fowl and Wetlands Trust reserves, which is near Ormskirk in Lancashire. I'll be there on the 14th and 15th of October. I'll be there with Fujifilm UK doing some workshops and seminars. Also in the lecture theatre talking about context and wildlife photography and telling a natural history story. There are lots of activities, lots of speakers, it's a great weekend. And there are more details on the WWT Martin website.
1: And if you're listening to this after the 14th and 15th of October, it was absolutely brilliant. Of course. (laughs) Well, that's about it for episode five. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed us rambling on and on about AI protuberances and Alan being upgraded to female. Get in touch. I say upgraded,
0: not definitely downgraded or upgraded. (laughs) Cross graded,
1: (laughs) perhaps, yeah. (laughs) That's just not (laughs) good. Get in touch with us with questions and comments. We'd love to hear you, as always. In episode six, we'll be talking about giving names to wild animals and anthropomorphism. That's quite hard for me to say at this stage after so many (laughs) beers. We did say we were going to talk about this in this episode, but things change and it'll be part of our next episode. We'll be talking about prime and zoom lenses on Safari as well as a lot more. Until then, that's all from us. Take care and ta-ta. Cheers.